is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned. We'll review this week's feature stories on WMRA, including Andrew Jenner's preview of the fourth visit to the Macy's Parade by JMU's marching band on Thanksgiving Day. Christopher Clymer-Kurtz reviews the wrangling in Harrisonburg over Airbnb regulation, and we'll have an update on what the city is considering now. And Virginia Public Radio reports on the Commonwealth's brush with history as potentially the last state necessary to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. But first, in October, reports by ProPublica and the New York Times highlighted racial disparities between whites and non-whites in the nation's public schools. A companion story in the Times focused on the wide gap between whites and blacks in Charlottesville city schools and cited the southern legacy of Jim Crow and segregation. One way of measuring racial disparities and these kind of gaps is, is looking at disparities in enrollment in advanced placement courses. WMRE's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz looks at some of the results in the Shenandoah Valley. Titled Miseducation, the ProPublica report said that nationally, white students are almost twice as likely as black students and 1.3 times as likely as Hispanic students to be in advanced placement, or AP, courses. The report lets users look up specific districts and schools. I looked up Harrisonburg High School and went there to meet a senior who moved here from the Dominican Republic five years ago. My name is Maripili Tolentino Wise. At Harrisonburg High School, 12% of students are black, 39% are white, and 43% are Hispanic. According to the ProPublica report, white students are about three times as likely to be enrolled in an AP course as are black and Hispanic students. Even though Mari Tolentino Baez and other Hispanics are two-fifths of the population, they make up only one-fifth of AP course enrollments. It's really accurate with what the reality is. Tolentino Baez is enrolled in a college prep program for first-generation college students and the Shenandoah Valley Scholars Latino Initiative, a mentoring program. She recently attended a Minority Student Achievement Network conference in Boston, and she's taking two dual enrollment courses through Blue Ridge Community College and two AP courses. It doesn't have to be just AP and dual enrollment. Even in some honors classes, you can kind of, you can step in those classes and you can see that there's a higher percentage of students who are not of color. More from Tolentino Baez in a moment. First, though... This is an ongoing, challenging discussion we have. Patrick Lintner is the interim superintendent in Harrisonburg City Public Schools. What do you do to ensure equity for students? What strategies do you employ to encourage participation? And then how do you bend your curriculum and pedagogy? How do you arc that so that it's maybe more available and relevant to students? White students at Harrisonburg High comprise 39% of the student body, but they are 60% of AP enrollments and receive only 28% of out-of-school suspensions. Students can be privileged. They don't necessarily have to be white to be privileged. But when a student has advantages that other students don't have, good for them and good for the, the potential outcomes they have, but what are the ways that you can compensate for students who don't have privilege? In Rockingham County, surrounding Harrisonburg, Oscar Scheichel is the public school superintendent. As educators, we have to be very, very careful that we don't create an education system that just mirrors our own experience. Scheichel oversees a student population that is 80% white. Only 2% of students are black and 13% are Hispanic. That 80% of students who are white makes up 85% of AP course enrollments. We casually, you know, use phrases like every child every day. 
but is the system really designed to work for all children? Where is the burden of change? It's on all of us. I reached out to Ed Brantmeyer for some perspective. He teaches educational leadership and cross-cultural education courses and more at James Madison University. What I think it's really important for us to think about is that racism is not necessarily individual acts of meanness, that racism can be structural. For example, schools may value one way of performing knowledge, so an oral presentation with an introduction, a middle, and a conclusion. And these performative styles are valued as a quote-unquote legitimate way of displaying official school knowledge. Statistics are the complex product of individual students' unique stories and local situations, but they also reflect matters rooted in history. If you look at that legacy of privilege throughout time, no doubt there's going to be disparities in these numbers because accumulated privilege over decades, wealth accumulation, social capital, cultural capital that's accumulated and then reproduced within a wider social structure like schools as a prime site of cultural and social reproduction. This is the story, this is the narrative, this is how certain groups maintain dominance over others. Educational systems can change to address these disparities, in part by fostering faculties that reflect student backgrounds and valuing different ways of knowing and diverse strengths. There are no simple solutions, Brandmeier said, just complex questions. Yeah. Back at Harrisonburg High School, student Tolentino Baez said the disparities in education make sense. It's kind of hard to integrate the people who were not in the table when the system was being made. They also have real impact. Even for myself, walking into a class where I don't see anybody else that looks like me, I feel like maybe this is not where I belong. Maybe I'm not in the place for me. Tolentino Baez doesn't know yet what she wants to study in college, but the support she has received has contributed to her successes so far against the statistical odds of disparity. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer Kurtz. JMU's Marching Royal Dukes were in New York City for their fourth appearance in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. In this story that we aired the day before Thanksgiving, WMRA's Andrew Jenner wondered whether the performance by the MRDs, as they're known, might also feature some shenanigans from a tuba playing prankster in their midst. It's 29 degrees and sleeting at Bridgeforth Stadium. Ice crunches beneath the feet of hundreds of Marching Royal Dukes during the final rehearsal of the routine they'll perform Thanksgiving morning in New York City as part of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. That clanging noise you hear is a metronome hooked to a sound system, helping the band keep time. Yeah, guards, give me a blast. You did that well. That's Dr. Scott Rickers, the band director, calling shots on the loudspeaker. This is how cold it's going to be Thanksgiving morning, he tells the freezing bands seething around him. The sleet has ruled out instruments, making this an a cappella practice. Rickers has more to worry about than weather as the Marching Royal Dukes prepare for their fourth appearance at the Macy's Parade since 2001. There's the military-grade logistics of loading a 535-member band into 11 buses and an instrument truck for the trip to New York, where they'll occupy 155 hotel rooms near Times Square. There's the performance itself, one minute and 15 seconds of fame in front of 55 million people who will watch the NBC broadcast on Thanksgiving morning. The Marching Royal Dukes will play I've Got Rhythm by George Gershwin. You know, the band does well with big band kind of jazzy tunes. It's just got a good energy to it, a good pulse. And then 
there's Andrew Foote to consider. Andrew the tuba player. Andrew is a really big personality. A self-described, goofy, lighten-things-up kind of guy, Foote is a senior who's distinguished himself with a recurring, unchoreographed gag during the band's encore song, Get It On. I will run around the outside of the band up to the front so that right as we're about to play the last sort of big note, I'll pick one of the members on the staff, usually it's Mr. Rickers, the band director, and put the tuba bell over his head and play on his head. It's slapstick at its finest. That's like a joke that is marketable to like age two up to age like 90. Everybody's like, oh, that's funny. He's got a tube on his head. And so when we were charting the Macy's routine, we immediately thought that Andrew's going to have a hard time staying in his charted position. In other words, are 55 million people about to see Dr. Scott Ricker's head disappear into one of his own tuba players' tubas? Andrew Foote. Let's see. Oh, my goodness. Colette Holland is a senior drum major in the Marching Royal Dukes. He's always there to cheer people up and put a smile on people's face. All of us were kids once, and it's good, I think, to tap into that sort of childlike energy and enthusiasm and fun. So I try to cut through some of the, oh, uh, stress about midterms and uh, stress about finals and, oh, man, I got this huge paper. This is a guy on a mission to turn frowns upside down. I think sometimes what all of us need is a little bit of the comic relief or just the you know, goofy positivity, because it can kind of cut through some of that negativity that we all experience when we're busy. Eric Fenska, another senior, plays baritone. Angie's like super energetic, always has a really fun attitude. Like, I mean, things are pretty serious, and he knows when to keep it serious, but like, you know, it keeps things fun. And that's, I think it's where we excel as a program and as a band overall. You know that quote about first-rate intelligence being the ability to comfortably hold two opposing ideas in your head? Maybe a first-rate marching band, as the Marching Royal Dukes are generally regarded, is one that can simultaneously go about things with the usual exacting rigor at the same time it channels its inner child. I think our band is very disciplined and we're clean, but we do want to enjoy it, you know, and I think some bands are a little too serious. I'm willing to ignore some things if that means the students can truly enjoy what they're doing. Foots on that same page and sees more to his role in all of this than tuba antics. In high school, I saw the MRDs and I thought, wow, That looks like such a fun band to be in. I want to be in a band like that, a band that has fun, because I had also seen the previous 20 minutes of really high-quality music making. So you got to earn the fun by doing a good job with the music, but I think if you do a good job with the music, then you've earned a little bit of that fun. The Marching Royal Dukes will set off early from Central Park. One hour and 2.5 miles later, sometime between 10 and 11 a.m., they'll come strutting onto the carpet in Herald Square with the cameras rolling, blaring Gershwin and spewing school spirit on national television. And then we'll all find out if Andrew Foote decides to cap off his career in the JMU marching band with a bang. He will not. And, And I'm saying this publicly so everyone can hear. He won't do it. Rickers sounds pretty confident until suddenly he doesn't. And if he does, then we'll talk about that later. Maybe you can interview him from jail. I'm not not going to do anything that I think could cause any serious damage to anybody there and nothing that would do anything bad to JMU's reputation. Foot also sounds pretty confident, until suddenly he doesn't. But there's some room there. In a little more than 24 hours, we'll find out just what that means. For WMRA News, I'm Andrew Jenner. Well, I was watching, and it looks like everyone behaved themselves, at least for the TV cameras. Great job once again, Marching Royal Dukes. 
One story we've been following for more than a year now, Harrisonburg officials may allow residents to rent their homes through Airbnb without a permit. But there's a catch. The Daily News Record reported last week that city officials are working on a plan to allow short-term rentals if the homeowner also stays overnight with the guests. Airbnb rentals are common, even though they're not really allowed by current law. Uh, in Harrisonburg, except in areas zoned for business use. Renters offer all or part of their property on a first-come, first-served basis for one or more nights, and that circumvents Harrisonburg's transient occupancy tax and other rules that hotels must follow. The new proposal is called homestay because it would require homeowners to be present when renting. But this is all still a bit up in the air, so to speak. One year after Governor Terry McAuliffe signed legislation giving localities authority to regulate short-term rentals, such as through Airbnb, in this report from last November, Christopher Clymer-Kurtz takes a deeper look at the issue. On a recent Saturday, I stopped by to visit the Wilson family. Hi. Come on in. Hey, buddy, can you bring your basket over here so I can start putting some of your stuff in here? This is Janine and her seven-year-old son, Jonah. Sure. We're just going to be folding laundry. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Is this... The Wilsons live in Belmont Estates, just west of Harrisonburg. Yeah, that's our koi pond. I'd come to their home to ask about Airbnb. They use Airbnb as guests and their active hosts. I really like the idea of, like, meeting new people and having people in our home, especially for Jonah him being an only child. I don't know, he really enjoys having guests stay, and he likes to help them make their coffee and... I think it's a good, like, social thing for him to meet new people and to realize that home is like a welcoming place for people. Now, lucky for the Wilsons, as Rockingham County residents, they are permitted to operate their Airbnb. In Harrisonburg City, though, where they used to live and where they also hosted through Airbnb, it's not allowed. If you were in a residential zoning classification and you are renting an Airbnb right now, uh, or if you are the proprietor of one, it is illegal. Adam Fletcher is Harrisonburg's Director of Planning and Community Development. He said that earlier this year, Virginia decided that localities can regulate short-term rentals such as Airbnb. Lexington, Charlottesville, and other localities have already implemented rules. Rockingham County Administrator Stephen King said that the Board of Supervisors will likely discuss taxation and short-term rentals in the coming months. The City of Winchester has only had some internal preliminary discussions and has no timeline for, quote, any future actions, said the City's Communications Director Amy Simmons. Harrisonburg City Council Member Richard Baugh said now is the time for local government to get involved with regulating Airbnb. It's been around long enough. It's gone from not existing to wow, we see clearly what this is and, and what it can do. If you're going to adopt rules for this stuff, better to do it now than have let sort of the marketplace sort this out for 20 years and then go back and do it. Although in Harrisonburg, hosting short-term rentals is currently not legal, it will be made permissible and taxable by regulations currently being drafted and expected to end up before the city council early next year. The current draft defines both Airbnbs and more traditional bed and breakfasts as the same use of property, short-term rentals that need a special use permit to operate. Again, Adam Fletcher. There are parameters and different things to look at in different circumstances, location being a big one. Is that location appropriate for short-term rentals? A special use permit costs at minimum $405, depending on the size of the property. It's usually a one-time fee and process and is a case-by-case -case consideration. A requirement, for example, that short-term rental hosts would actually have to reside on site to ensure accountability for neighbors could be included as needed. And under the current draft regulations, once a permit is granted, that Airbnb activity will be taxable. 
Harrisonburg's Commissioner of the Revenue is Karen Rose. They would be required to get a business license with our office, and then they would need to be also collecting the transient occupancy tax and remitting that on a monthly basis, such as our bed and breakfast do. Many hosts in Harrisonburg probably wouldn't owe any business license fee. That cost depends on annual gross receipts. For a business with gross receipts of less than $10,000, there is no fee. Airbnb reported that last year the average host in Virginia earned well below the threshold for having to pay a fee in Harrisonburg. But all city hosts would have to collect the 7% transient occupancy tax from guests and remit that to the city every month. Either they'd have to lower their fees or Airbnb guests would end up paying more. An Airbnb spokesperson said that it already collects and remits taxes on behalf of more than half of its U.S. hosts, but to do that in Virginia would require state legislation that hasn't been passed. However the transient occupancy tax would be collected, it's not a matter of pennies. For Harrisonburg, it could be several tens of thousands of dollars. For Charlottesville, its potential is more like in the low hundreds of thousands. Until the new regulations are implemented in Harrisonburg, the city's Airbnb hosts are a bit, well, left up in the air. Rachel Whitmer has hosted through Airbnb over the last two years. She just recently learned that it's not allowed. I wouldn't knowingly move forward breaking the law. I would jump through the hoops unless they're not worth it, and then I would just cancel the whole operation. For the next while, visitors to Harrisonburg might have to Airbnb outside of city limits or get a hotel room. It could be mid-2018 before any Airbnb hosts in the friendly city legally can begin welcoming more guests. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer-Kurtz. Virginia is on the verge of history. The Commonwealth could be the 38th and final state necessary to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. The amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees rights for women equal to those of men. Momentum around the cause has surged, giving activists hope that 2019 could be the year. But the fight began decades ago. Virginia Public Radio's Mallory Nopain reports. Donna Gransky remembers standing in the snow, holding a candle. It was 1979, or maybe 80. She can't remember exactly. There's a walkway between the General Assembly building and the Capitol, and we stood and silently vigiled. She was with the League of Women Voters. They were asking lawmakers in Virginia to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, but they never did. Gransky says there was a real fear of cultural change. If you're somebody of power and privilege, you see equality whatever kind of equality as being oppressive to you, you're threatened. Back in 1972, when the amendment first passed Congress, a majority of states jumped on board, ratifying almost immediately. But many in the South held out. Gransky is originally from New York, and she didn't understand the resistance. She asked a friend, who was a state lawmaker, what's going on here? And he calmly looked at me, and he was a freshman delegate, and he said, oh, Donna, it'll be 40 to 60 years before it's ratified in the state of Virginia. It'll have been 41 years, this upcoming General Assembly. Gransky and others are ready. This year, several groups have mobilized. They've organized a lobbying effort, including an educational bus tour. They're energized because two more states, Nevada and Illinois, recently ratified. That means one more state is needed to get the necessary two-thirds approval. 
Democratic delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy says Virginia should be the one to take the ERA over the finish line. Virginia has been on the wrong side of history a couple of times. We fought against uh, women's right to vote, interracial marriage, desegregation. So I think it's only right and appropriate for us to be the state to put women's equality into the United States Constitution. There are a couple barriers to doing that, though. First, lawmakers imposed a deadline that's since passed. Supporters say Congress could lift it, and they would have the motivation if the ERA gets the state support it needs. Have a seat on the ridiculous bus. Climb aboard the Ratify bus, and organizer Katie Hornung says the second challenge is getting Virginia's Republican leadership on board. This was originally a Republican ideal back in the 70s. That's the administration it came out from. I'm a fourth-generation Republican, and everybody in my family thinks this is a great idea. Hornung recently met with Virginia's Republican Speaker of the House, who told her there wasn't much support for the ERA in his caucus. A spokesperson for the speaker says there are serious legal questions and that the bill would have to go through the legislative process like any other. Hornung knows it might be an uphill climb, but she believes it's a bipartisan issue. And for those who have been working on the issue for decades, the challenges now are less daunting than they used to be. Donna Gransky sees the fresh energy and is optimistic. I want my daughter, my daughter-in-law, and my two granddaughters to know that they are part of the United States Constitution. So do almost all Americans. According to a poll conducted by the ERA Coalition, 94% support guaranteeing equal rights between men and women in the U.S. Constitution. In Richmond, I'm Mallory Nopain. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Cam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. You'll find all our stories archived at WMRA.org. To support local and regional news coverage on WMRA, go to that website, Mouse Over News, then click on News and Information Fund. And while you're there, subscribe to the WMRA Daily Podcast for an update on the local and statewide news. It pops up every weekday there on your smartphone. Details at WMRA.org. Just look for the uh, uh, iconic black WMRA coffee mug with the blue sticky note that says daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.